to separate biology from the human person. I was in the driver's seat. Let me play my part. Check two, hey. Check like, two, is that real? Did that happen? Like, the structure of your brain actually changes. And do you still feel that every day? And then it got time for guitars. Eating disorder, like, I didn't want to die. Tendencies. But I didn't want to live. Yeah. Girl. You gotta go in the hospital. You feel powerless because the body has a fear reaction. The opportunity to empower. No one can take away my power. I won't take myself out. Artists that are true like that, those are the ones that tend to like create change. podcast on youtube or whenever you'll see that mic a lot Alrighty, sounds good Sweet. okay cool um so first of all i want to make sure i'm not butchering your last name swice okay i did say it right yeah yeah <laughs> uh dr brian swice from the university of minnesota mm-hmm. correct yep well why don't you uh, i mean i was introduced to you through dr annie hanos who's already been on the program mm-hmm. um for listeners uh who've already heard that interview i'm sure you were very impressed she knows what she's doing when it comes to eating disorders research um and i asked her can I get a neuroscientist? <laughs> and uh, she goes, yeah, I know, I know tons of them. <laughs> she is, she is a neuroscientist, right? She's a, she's a rock star too at the That's University funny. of Minnesota. She might've been acting a little bit humble then. Cause she could have looked me in the eye and said, you're talking to one, you idiot. <laughs> yeah. No, well, <laughs> everyone comes from different backgrounds of training. Um, and so she's, she's in the department of psychiatry. Um, okay. but she's just as much of any of us studying the brain. Interesting. Well, why don't we start with that? Yeah. Um, give you, you know, your formal background as you want to introduce yourself. Sure. And then I've already got like preliminary questions about what it even means to be a neuroscientist oh, versus a neurologist versus a neurosurgeon versus a psychologist. I got sure. questions. <laughs> yeah. From you or from viewers? From my, my own mind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's going to get Great. dark. No. That's, that's okay. We got skulls. We're good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Carved that for our fifth anniversary, which was not this year, but our last year. Okay. So, yeah, that's a little anniversary gift. No. Posthumous, as most of them will be. But, yeah. Cool. All right. Your background. Sure. Um, So, let's see. Where to start? Um, Born and raised in Chicago. And I moved here almost eight years ago. Um, So, after college, I came straight to Minnesota for medical school. Um, And like most medical schools in the country, after college, it's four years um, before you get your MD. And then you still have to go down the endless road of specializing, subspecializing before you get into the meat of clinical practice. But um, when I was in college, I was turned on to the idea of being a scientist and kind of the idea of becoming a physician was put on the back burner and I fell in love with science. I, I studied PTSD, anxiety, and stress back in Chicago. Fell in love with science. I said, you know what? Forget med school. I want to go become a professor, become a researcher, open up my own lab one day, have my own students, and just continue to dive into the endless world of science. Um, and my advisor at the time turned me on to the fact that, you know, you could do both. You could be a physician in medicine, taking care of patients, and double as a scientist. So I came to the University of Minnesota to get both my medical degree and my PhD in neuroscience. And it's an extended, protracted program, about eight years. And I'm at the tail end of that eight-year journey right now. So I took four years 
of a hiatus in the middle of medical school to go train to be a neuroscientist. Finished my PhD last year. Um, and that was mostly, yeah, it was, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of fun. Um, I would do it again. Um, and after the end of my four years of diving into the world of decision-making, um, in the context of addiction, but now we're studying decision-making broadly speaking across all mental illnesses, which is how I got connected with Dr. Annie Hainos. If you can explain the decisions of addicts, uh, you're going to have a big audience. Oh, well, we can talk a lot about that. That's what I spent love to. four years getting into. Um, uh, we'll, we'll make sure we get to that before you leave. Yeah, we'll circle back to it. That's That's been the crux of my work. Not eating disorders per se, mm-hmm. but um, how the brain makes decisions and what happens when that begins to go awry. Um, and I finished my PhD last year, and then I jumped back into where I left off in medical school. Because mm. um, that was kind of a big wedge right in the middle. And so I'm in my final year of medical school. I'll graduate in May from the University of Minnesota Medical School. Okay. Um, but I have that PhD uh, training element tied into medicine. And so right at the cusp of deciding where I want to go and specialize in psychiatry with uh, a very heavy research focus, continuing to bring neuroscience into psychiatry. So what does that mean exactly? Uh, can you differentiate between those two things? Uh, yeah, right. I mean, you mentioned this uh, just a bit ago, right? What's the difference between neuroscience between psychology, psychiatry, um, neurology, neurosurgery. These are all different uh, bins of schools of thought, different career paths. Um, and they tend, they tended to be siloed in the past, kind of very segregated disciplines. And I feel like it's now all kind of drifting and merging together. Because um, at the end of the day, we're all interested in studying behavior. Um, and how does the mind exist separate from the brain? And how are they intertwined together? Um, so clinically speaking, um, psychologists generally make up the majority of our, the therapists that exist out there in the workforce of mental health. Um, but generally speaking, psychiatry is more on the prescribing side of mental health, prescriptions, pharmacology, medications, um, in addition to therapy. But that's kind of the big classic difference between psychology and psychiatry. That one I knew. I was right. trying to understand, I guess, where psychology versus neuroscientist fits yeah the psychologists know their way around brain anatomy right sure right and it's uh and i think it's um right so neuroscientists um generally speaking if you get trained in neuroscience um it's a pretty loosely used term but generally speaking these are folks that go to graduate school to study um the neurobiology of the nervous system right Mm -hmm. um and it might be very far removed from what psychologists do, which is interacting with, with human, human individuals, whether you're a therapist or you're doing research in human populations. Sometimes it's purely behavioral. Sometimes they get into brain scans to understand how the brain works. But neuroscientists or neurobiologists can be far on the opposite side of understanding what molecules are doing in the brain, mm. understanding, um, understanding the electrophysiological properties of the brain, right? Can get very, very chemical, biological, um, so much far removed from, uh, from human behavior. Um, and so these might be people studying fruit flies, might be people studying worms in a dish that are neuroscientists. Yeah. That reminds me of something I saw a politician say years ago that, uh, I won't name the person because we're not a political podcast, but I think, uh, there's like an anti-science streak that can get kind of popular, like anti-elitist, anti... Hmm. Uh, in, in some of the political conversations that happen in this world, and I remember someone got huge applause for saying uh, that she was going to be an advocate for special needs people rather than wasting money staring at fruit flies. I was hmm. like, you're a moron. 
Yeah. <laughs> and and you, you How frustrating is that for yeah. you? Yeah, well, I think there's there's as scientists, right? We're all scientists, people who want to go into academia to explore the unknown, right? Mm. We're all explorers at the edge of what you can look up in the back of a textbook. Right. And you can do that so many different levels. It doesn't just have to be uh, valid if you're doing what psychologists are doing with people mm-hmm. versus studying something on the complete opposite side. Cause it, it all builds. We're all, I mean, I think we're learning from other scientists. In fact, when fields come together is where you see the exciting discoveries made understanding how some tiny molecule works in a fruit fly all the way up to what that means for human behavior. You'll have people working across that continuum. And I think you need all those post all those pieces together. Well, I'm going to start heavy then. Uh, I follow yeah. a neuroscientist. You've heard of Sam Harris. The name sounds familiar. Yeah, he's kind of popular, um, or, or at least well-known. <laughs> Not always popular. <clears throat> but I, I find his, um, you know, a lot of the topics that he gets into kind of interesting. And he had a podcast episode recently on uh, consciousness um, where he was talking about, like, what did he say? He said, free will is definitely an illusion, but it's okay to be motivated by the illusion. He was like, I was like, God, that's depressing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a loaded can of worms, right? Well, what's um, the difference? So let me, let's splice it down for a second. Yeah. Let's draw a line between anatomy and accountability. Is that possible to do? Unpack that a little bit more for me. What do you mean? Okay. So like when you were saying, uh, okay, I'll take an extreme example. Okay. Charles Whitman, okay. murderer. Right, he had a pecan-sized tumor pushing on his amygdala. Mm-hmm. Went for I think he saw five doctors and, and got no help, and they yep. were like, "You're fine. What's wrong with you? Upstanding citizen." Admired. Before seeing this tumor, right? Yeah. Before knowing that that yeah, could know. have been this under was the like hood. The 60s, I think. Right. So this is a famous thing. It's in Wikipedia. Yeah, and yeah, everything. yeah. Um, I should probably look it up and read it correctly rather than sit here and bullshit you. But you know, he loving husband and father and everything like that murders his wife, and. The entire time, months leading up to it, he had been begging for help. Like I don't, mm-hmm. and he left a note saying, or or made a statement in court or something saying, "I don't know why I'm doing this." No, it was right before. It was while he was planning it and getting ready. He goes, "By the way, I hope if I, if this kills me, that someone researches my brain because I have no idea why I'm doing this." Fast yeah. forward, it's a fucking tumor. Yeah. So there's your anatomy controlling yeah. your behavior in the most extreme example I can think of off the top of my head. But then there's the people who are like. You know, oh, my, my anxiety made me do it. My depression made yeah. me do it. And it's just like, come on, you guys. Accountability has to be part of the recovery process. So, okay. You see lot, what I'm trying to A lot ask? of stuff there, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just, <laughs> actually, yesterday I was uh, invited to speak at the University of Minnesota Law School about the intersection between neuroscience and law. And one of the hot topics we always talk about is accountability, especially as we're discovering more about how the brain gives rise to the choices we make. Mm. Who's in the driver's seat? What's the difference between uh, anxiety that is kind of something that everyone experiences versus things that drive you to make certain types of decisions that might be considered pathological, right? Mm. Um, So, yeah, this is a there's a law professor at the University of Minnesota, Francis Shen, who's an amazing professor that is right in the middle of all of these new upcoming hot topics about what do we do with brain knowledge as we're discovering what it might mean for legal implications. How do you spell that person's name? Francis, um, F-R-A-N-C-I-S, and his last name is Shen, S-H-E-N. Okay, not be some, he, Okay. Yeah. Um, but the point being is, uh, first time I met him, we had a very interesting conversation about, I think an editorial was made called My Tumor Made Me Do It, right? Oh, shit. Yeah, And of what does that mean for someone who, uh, you know, like if I can pull up a brain scan and there's a big 
orange-sized ball pushing on parts of the brain that we as neuroscientists think might play a critical role in aggression. Mm. What does that mean for how you treat that person if they do commit murder, right? Does that change accountability or how we sentence those individuals? Um, but I like how you, I thought it was interesting how you use anxiety as a contrast to that, um, as if that's any less tangible, yeah, right, yeah. than a big tumor pushing on parts of the brain. I think as we're understanding how untangling this ball of yarn that the brain is, as we're beginning to understand that, why should that be any less forgivable or any digested in any different way hmm. than a mass of brain cells that are growing out of control that's not your fault yeah. that's causing you to behave a certain way? Um, not to get too reductionist, but as we're beginning to discover more about how the brain gives rise to behavior, are you going to go so far and say, well, everything is just biological cells that's subject to glucose deprivation, oxygen demands, all the things that might make a cell not function as well as it normally would. Hmm. And then that drives irrational behaviors yeah. or certain actions that might be considered uh, wrong. Yeah. Um, it's just... There's no, I don't think there's a clear definition. And if anything, we're finding out about more about how tangible all these things are, that they live somewhere in the brain. Hmm. Um, and there are people who go way on the other extreme, that all of consciousness or everything that we do is a product of neurobiological processes. Hmm. Um, and where do you begin to separate biology from uh, the human person? That's, I think we can explore that yeah, for, for yeah, a while. A we'll of, see how much time you have, yeah. <laughs> how much mental energy right, I've that, got. Answer, the mysteries of the universe, we'll get to. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, so, all right, we're already there, so let's get into it. Yeah. So this concept of, I bring up accountability a lot on this program um, because I think it's an empowering thing. I don't see it as a judgmental or a shameful thing. I see, um, I, I mean, I, I, everything with the Kelly Nicole Foundation is based on what I learned in my time with Kel, which was only three years okay. uh, alive at the same time. But... <clears throat> you know, those three years was a lot of hospital visits, a lot of clinic visits, uh, mm. weekly therapy, and, and then EMDR and more specific trauma therapy after that felt sense, somatic experiencing. Like, there was a, it was a crash course, we'll call it. Um, and I remember one time we were in group. It was friend's family night, so I'm sitting there with her. And uh, they go around the room and ask everyone what they need from their loved one for support. You know, teach these people how to build a, a structure of support around them. And she said, when it came to her, she said... What I need is love and accountability. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's really a powerful paradox. If people can feel held accountable in the absence of shame um, and that it's pure, that it's a loving thing, I think that can change the world. Mm -hmm. So that's why I bring it up a lot because I don't like the idea of my, my disease made me do it. Because yeah. we, are, we know that eating disorders are diseases of, of disconnection. People feel disconnected from their bodies. And I know I'm here having you on the show to talk about the body in a physical way. Yeah. But at the same time, where does that, where does that free will and that person as they are, like you, Brian, me, Teresa, say, mm. okay, well, I can't always blame everything on my brain. Eventually, I made a choice and I have to have my own character and convictions and values. And like, but do those have physical manifestations yeah. too? It's, it's an endless rabbit hole. And, um, you know, my... One of my PhD advisors, um, I trained under David Reddish and Mark Thomas at the University of Minnesota, um, rock stars at the U of M. Um, but we, we essentially try and tackle those, those big questions. Um, I have a background in philosophy for my undergraduate studies, but it's insane how much all this stuff gets extremely philosophical when we're trying to understand um, human behavior and motivation at an abstract level, as well as trying to actually dig into the neurobiology of it. Um, 
I mean, my whole dissertation was understanding how we make decisions. Mm-hmm. And when you say, you know, you, Teresa, me, Brian, we are individuals with character traits and thoughts and feelings. And when we make choices, we think that we're in control of all of these types of decisions. And um, the way we study that in the laboratory is we talk about that as just one type of way the brain makes decisions when we are kind of in this thoughtful, deliberative driver's seat, right? Where we are flexible enough to think about, reflect on the past, imagine the future, factor in the things we might want to weigh against one another. Should I do this or should I do that? And it, it seems very us and very um, you at the center of you being the human being making these choices. Mm-hmm. Turns out that's just one of the systems that the brain uses when making a decision. And that that is just as much as an equal player in how we behave as other parts of our brain that make choices that don't seem so deliberative, right? That don't seem so thoughtful and calculated. Um, But those are also parts of us Mm -hmm. that make us who we are. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just seems like from the conscious human beings that we are, that we're kind of tapping in and in control of, it's kind of strange to think that we're just in control of only one of the ways that we make choices and behave. But we have habits, right? We have emotional reactions to things that drive us to behave in certain ways that might not explain all the aspects of us. And then there's another side of it, uh, like what percentage of thought is even conscious? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I don't know if it's even majority. I think it's, I might have heard somewhere, you can help me out with this, that the majority of, I guess you wouldn't say thought, but that's a colloquialism, we'll say brain activity, um, what percentage of brain activity is even conscious? Like, I'm going to think, oh, I need to plug in this mic mm-hmm. because we're doing a podcast interview. Okay, I thought about that. But how right. many processes are going on in my brain and communicating between my brain and my body yeah. that I never think about? Breathing, right. et cetera, Absolutely. et cetera. Or how many times do you plug in the mic and you didn't actually think through it like you did earlier today? Cruise control. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's. I, I'd like to think that most of the information that's being thrown at us in the environment is being processed on a subconscious level. And we are only shining our attentional spotlight and only aspects of that. Um, And sometimes we make decisions where things are under our attentional spotlight. And sometimes we make decisions that um, we ignore those aspects of information. Um, That also gets into what most of my PhD work was on. I got got into the fun world of behavioral economics. And when do we sometimes make decisions where if you crunch the numbers, that's not the most economically rational decision to make. And sometimes we overvalue things and sometimes we undervalue and ignore aspects of information. Constantly. And these all live presumably in different parts of the brain. And it goes back to the point we keep coming back to is all these other complex, higher order things we add on top of human behavior. Do those also live somewhere else physically in in a tangible part of the brain? Right. And if you think about neuroscience and brain function that way, what happens when each one of those 10 unique building blocks begin to malfunction or die off or rewire in ways? Um, pick, your label, pick your layer of complex human process and any one of those could go awry in any hundred different ways. Um, and at the end of the day, you might have people with psychiatric illness or you might have someone who relapses for a million different ways that are ways that we're starting to understand hidden within the brain or ways that we've yet to understand. Mm-hmm. When it comes to unconscious thought, unconscious processes, um, we're going to go through the looking glass here because I'm trying to 
I'm going to try to flip it around. Um, we can affect that by the conscious decisions we make, right? Like I, I might not know how a walk in, in nature calms me down, but I have some sense that if I put myself in that environment, the bird song, the sound of the water, this and that, the look of the sky will have some kind of a calming influence on me and I can try to regulate my emotions. So there, there's subconscious things happening that maybe I can't describe in the moment, mm -hmm. but my conscious mind sent me there trying mm. to do the quote-unquote right thing, you know, some kind of healthy form of self-care. Right. Um, so even with our unconscious thoughts and, and processes, um, what, what do people in your position think, if anything, about our ability to control that and try to shape our environment? Because you still decided, like you right now, if you hated this room, you'd be like, why, why did yeah. I come here? I made this decision myself and now I hate it. Yeah. I think, um, it, I think that that question taps into, um, I think like the, the bigger area of mindfulness, right. And just being self-aware. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of people are, um, studying that both from a scientific level and then just from a holistic level, just, is that something that takes training to, right. To actually know yourself and be self-aware so that, um, you actually are figuring out how your body works and you're actually doing what you can kind of ahead of time or premeditatively to put yourself in the best situation to make optimal choices. Mm -hmm. um, it gets into kind of this other area of metacognition. At what point are you aware of um, the possibilities that the different roads you can go down and the environments you find yourselves in sculpting your behavior. Um, it goes back to this old concept called pre-commitment where an individual who's trying to remain sober or doesn't want to relapse won't even go to the bar to hang out with his buddies. Of course. Because there's some degree of self-awareness and that if I even just avoid that situation altogether, that's going to be my best chance. Even if they were to actually go there, they probably would have a good time with their buddies and might not drink. Yet there's some degree of self-awareness and mindfulness that pre-commits before even putting themselves in that situation, then I'm just going to avoid that altogether. And at what point does that become suboptimal and not the healthiest thing to do? Why um, is that? Who's to say that this individual might not relapse, right? Who's to say that you can actually continue to be social and hang out with your buddies? Um, and why avoid that altogether by just staying at home? Well, that's right? is that is that worth the trade-off? And I think people have been studying pre-commitment in substance use disorder and other psychiatric illnesses as far as how does the brain's ability to just know about what could happen if I were in those other situations, how can that be a way how can that be a strategy I can use to live your best life and then does that actually become a problem in and of itself? Mm -hmm. Well, that okay, so that's an interesting thing that you just said because I think again as a layperson, the person on the street uh, with a little bit of life experience or maybe who has loved an addict or something um, would say that that person that's avoiding the situations that they associate with that and has made new friends um, is taking the wise ro the wise road, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that going back to all the old places with all the old people and saying, I'll be the one who's different. I'll withstand everything around me and I just, you know, I'll be the sober cab or whatever. is just kind of like not super committed to sobriety. You think the research isn't that clear cut? Um, I think, I think it's not very clear cut from the standpoint that, um, what's in, what's best in service for every individual is probably unique to, to each person. Um, this particular way of living might suit one person better than the other. Um, whereas someone who maybe all of a sudden becomes socially withdrawn, um, 
those types of decision processes might actually not be at one's best interest. Um, like you're sacrificing a whole potential possible good things in your life to avoid something that would be um, potentially avoiding a relapsing situation. Um, so I think I think it's tough. I think it's tough to say. Um, but both from interacting with the patients that I've had, and then as well as conducting experiments in the laboratory, um, I think we're constantly trying to understand what drives suboptimal decisions and what drives decisions that might seem like good choices, but are actually happening at the expense of sacrificing other mm-hmm. possible good things. I think it's a complicated um, story there. Get the music behind the mission. Hate Becoming by Kelly Nicole on iTunes and Spotify. If you guys haven't checked out the merch table, join the movement. Buy the album. Get your Kelly Nicole band merch and donate what you can at kellynicolefoundation.org. Courage is from Amplified!